25th chapter. We are going to start tonight a study on the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. We're going to learn about the only building of its kind, of its size, of its size, other than the temple, of course, but of its size to ever be completely perfect in every detail. This tabernacle is estimated to cost $2 million in its construction. So we're going to spend as much time as God wants us to studying the tabernacle of Moses. It's good to see each and every one of you. Glad that you're here tonight. Praise the Lord. Let me turn these lights off so that you can see the picture a little better. Give myself a little light here. Amen. So I can see the, the scripture. All right. There's a picture of the tabernacle right there. You can see how massive the encampment was. And we'll talk about the encampment as we get to that, how large the encampment was. And we'll talk about where it was laid, how it was laid out, etc. But if you can imagine, I'll just give you a little detail about how large this encampment was. It would cover 480 square miles. So this encampment was not a little thing. What God did here was not a little thing. It was a very, very big thing that he did. Exodus chapter 25, in the word of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart. Ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and badger skins and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for sweet incense, the onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I will show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. We ask your blessing to be upon the reading of your Holy Scripture. We ask God that you would give us illumination and revelation tonight and inspiration tonight, Father, to declare your word concerning the tabernacle. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. When you study the tabernacle, the significance of the tabernacle is seen in the fact that there are 43 consecutive chapters that are given to the study of the tabernacle, beginning with chapter 25, all the way up through those chapters in the book of Leviticus. When you look at 
the dwelling place that God made for man to live in, God in Genesis gives it two chapters. And you think about the vastness of this planet, how large this planet is, and how much time the scientists spend in studying the place that God made for man to dwell. And he put it in two chapters in Genesis 1 and 2. When we come to the tabernacle, in order to study the mysteries and the wonders of God's dwelling place, we have over 40 chapters, 43 chapters consecutively that deals with the tabernacle alone. So if you think the dwelling place of man is awesome, the planet Earth, you're about to see some things in the next few weeks that will teach you the mysteries and the wonders of where God dwells. Say praise the Lord. When you study the tabernacle, verse 9 of Exodus 25 tells you that it is a pattern. Say a pattern. So right off we find out when God tells them to build this tabernacle, He lets us know by the word pattern that it is pointing to something in the future. That it's not just going to be built, just to be built as a structure. But every piece, every furniture, every curtain, everything that's in this tabernacle is a pattern. It is pointing to something that is going to come. It's a pattern. Say a pattern. It's a pattern of something else. So when you study the tabernacle, it's not just to study the furniture, the parts and pieces of the tabernacle. It's to understand that everything in it represents something that is going to come in the future. Say amen. Let's go over to the book of Hebrews and we will find there that God makes reference to the tabernacle. The book of Hebrews is the commentary, New Testament commentary on the Old Testament. You cannot understand the Old Testament if you do not understand the book of Hebrews. And we recently taught you that book not long ago. A commentary on the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 8. Please turn there. And there it tells us in verse 5 to serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the what? Tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. So God lets us know. Uh, he tells Moses that the tabernacle is going to be a shadow. It's going to be a pattern. What is a shadow? Anybody know what a shadow is? How do you get a shadow? Well, this is a shadow. This is an Old Testament shadow. It is a pattern of something that's going to come. Now, the shadow is not the reality. You understand that? A shadow is not the real thing. Reality is standing in light. 
that make sense? How do you get a shadow? You can see my shadow right here, I think. Some of you can. Why is there a shadow being cast back like that? Does light create a shadow? No. There's the light right there. I'm the object standing in the light. And the object standing in the light casts a shadow. Now, can you tell very much about me right there on the floor in the shadow? You can see a sketch. You can see a figure. You can see a shadow of me, correct? But is that shadow on the floor, is that the real me? No. I'm the real me. But I'm standing in this light, and as I stand in this light, the object standing in light creates the shadow. So in the Old Testament, then, we have a shadow. But that's not the real thing. That means there was something, an object, standing in light, casting its shadow back into the Old Testament. You catch that? That is the shadow. Now, let's go to Psalm 50 and verse 2. Where did the light come from for the tabernacle? Because remember, the shadow is not the, real, the reality. It's a picture, okay? It's a silhouette of the real thing. All right, Psalm 50, verse 2. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with this scripture. Psalm 50 and verse 2, it says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. You understand that? So he's letting you know out of heavenly Zion that God is shining. The light is coming from God. It's the God of glory who is shining. So he's the light. Okay? And he's shining on, if he's the light, he's shining on an object that's casting that shadow or reflection back into the Old Testament. So what is the light shining on then that creates that shadow or that reflection? Well, first of all, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that that Old Testament tabernacle was a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. Okay? So there was already a heavenly tabernacle, if you will, if you can grasp it, the New Jerusalem. Now, some people think that when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, all right, you with me, John 14, y'all remember that? So I go to prepare a place for you, are y'all here? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will what? I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Is that correct? Some people think, well, Jesus, after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, took a hammer, a gold hammer and silver nails, and started building the new Jerusalem. When it says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, the new Jerusalem already was in existence when he said that. Okay? Are y'all here? 
to prepare the place for us, then it's not the Lord up there building a heavenly tabernacle or a heavenly sanctuary with a hammer and nails. That new Jerusalem was already built. You understand that? It already existed before Adam and Eve. It existed before Abraham. But when it says he's going to prepare a place for us, that means he's going to take his blood there and he's going to purify the heavens because Lucifer rebelled against God there and polluted it. So when he dies on the cross, he's going to prepare a place not by building the city. The city's already built. He's going to prepare it by his blood, purifying that place because the devil rebelled. All that he has to do now because it's been purified, prepared, is to sound the trumpet and shout and call you up to heaven. Does that make sense? So when we talk about this shadow and we talk about from Zion, the perfection of light has shined. We are talking about before the world was ever created, there was the new Jerusalem. And God there shined on that heavenly tabernacle and cast it down to the earth. So that Hebrews tells you that the real tabernacle is in heaven. And this right here was a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. Do you understand that? Praise the Lord. Now, that's the first thing you need to understand. But secondarily, it's a picture of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the true tabernacle. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1, 14 says, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So this tabernacle, this shadow then, is a shadow of Jesus, the true tabernacle of God. And everything you see in this tabernacle, you're going to see the object is Jesus hanging on the cross. So the light of God is shining on the heavenly tabernacle. The light of God is shining on Calvary. You with me? Now how can that be? If this happened before Jesus ever came. How can God cast His light on Calvary and cast that shadow back to the Old Testament if this happened before Calvary? That is exactly right. Jesus was slain from before the foundation of the world so that in heaven everything is already finished. Do you understand that? Before it happens in time, it's already finished. So, because... You with me here? It was already finished in eternity before it happened in time. God can shine His light on that object of Jesus hanging on the cross, the true tabernacle hanging on the cross, and cast a shadow back into the Old Testament with the details of what Jesus' first coming in His humiliation and hanging on the cross, all that means. It's to help you understand Jesus' first coming. So the light shining on the heavenly tabernacle casted it back to the Old Testament tabernacle. It's shining on Jesus hanging on the cross. You will see that the encampment itself is in the shape of a cross. You with me? 
when Israel traveled through the wilderness, if you were to be in an airplane, you could look down and you would see them traveling in the shape of a cross. All the pieces of the furniture, the altar, the labor, the uh, menorah, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and then the Ark of the Covenant. That's all in the shape of a cross. You understand that? So Jesus is hanging on a cross here, object standing in light, and it's cast back to the Old Testament, and we have the shadow here, or the reflection of the reality. Number three, it represents you and it represents I. Because the Bible says, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. So now you are the tabernacle or you are the dwelling place of God. So everything we study in relationship to this shadow that's been cast uh, by that object standing in light is going to teach you about the heavenly tabernacle, about Jesus Christ in His first coming. The temple speaks of Jesus in His second coming as King. This tabernacle speaks of Jesus in His first coming and His humiliation upon the cross. Are y'all with me? And thirdly, it speaks to you, the church, the dwelling place of God today. So that's why this study is so very, very important. So when we look at Hebrews, and it tells us in Hebrews 8 and verse 5 that it's a shadow. That means it's a reflection of an object that's standing in light. And hence, we've already declared to you what that is. Say, praise the Lord. Now, God is that light. Say, amen. Let's go over to the book of Hebrews once again. Hebrews 9 and verse 9. Lay some foundation for you here. Hebrews 9, 9. And as we look at it, we need to keep in mind, then what do we need to keep in mind? We need to keep in mind that it's a picture of that true heavenly tabernacle. It's a picture of Jesus Christ, and it's a picture of the church and salvation. You've got to keep that in mind, okay? Because every place, every piece of furniture was a bleeding spot on Jesus' body, the true tabernacle. He bled in his feet. He bled in his side, the labor. He bled in his two hands, the showbread and the menorah. His heart was broken at the cross and blood and water came out of his, out of his side. That is the altar of incense. And then his head was pierced. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm trying to give you bits and pieces so you understand the significance of this. Now go to Hebrews 9 verse 9. Uh, uh, let's start with verse 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure, say a figure, for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So now in Hebrews 9, and 9, it tells us that it was a figure. Okay, so what is it so far we've learned? It's a pattern. It's a shadow. It's a reflection of something that's going to come in the future. Now we find out God says it is a figure. That means it's an outline. It's a sketch of what is going to take place in the future. That's what the word figure means. It means a sketch. Say praise the Lord. Okay, let's go to um, Acts 7. 
In Acts chapter 7, in reference to the tabernacle, he says, in verse 44, he says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. The word fashion there, literally the Greek is type. So now we know by this word, that it is a, a fashion or it is a type of something that's going to come. So you have a type first, and then you have an anti-type, which is the fulfillment of the type. You with me? Say amen if you are. It's sort of like, how many of y'all, do I have a notary republic? I think a uh, notary, notary here. You're a notary, brother? Okay, that stamp that you use, all right? You have a stamp and impression that's placed on the paper, correct? So you have a type and you have an anti-type, the fulfillment of the type. So it's going to be exact. It's going to be identical. It's not going to be different. So when we talk about a type of Jesus Christ, we talk about a type of the heavenly tabernacle, we talk about a type of the church, you're going to see it exactly in the type because the anti-type, does that make sense? The fulfillment of the type is going to have the same impression. You can recognize it. Does that make sense to you? Now, so we have here, the Bible says in verse 44, our Acts 7, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. Who did he speak to Moses? Who speak to Moses? God spake to Moses, right? I'll read it again. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the type that he had seen. So what we have here is God, we'll get into this, Moses goes up into Mount Sinai, he brings two things back down with him from the mountain. He brings the law of God and he brings the tabernacle plan, the plan for the tabernacle. Now you remember, as soon as he comes down, the people are worshiping naked a false god. And he takes the tables of stone and breaks them. Because they have already broken the law of God by false worship. So look at this. God gives him a tabernacle. The law, because it's been broken, can't save you. You understand? It was already broken before they ever got started. It was already broken. So the law can't save you, amen, it condemns you. So God then gives him the plan of the tabernacle, the law that condemns you in one hand, the tabernacle in the other hand, the tabernacle restores you back to fellowship with God. Does that make sense? So God showed Moses when he was in Mount Sinai, he gave him the Ten Commandments, the law, and he also gave him this tabernacle. That means that God showed him a miniature tabernacle. Now I say miniature, maybe it wasn't miniature at all. Maybe Moses looked into the same heaven that Isaiah looked into when he saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. 
Are y'all with me here today? If, if Moses, if God showed Moses the heavenly tabernacle, it wasn't miniature. It was large. What the Bible's telling you is that God appointed Moses to build this tabernacle. Moses didn't design it. Moses didn't plan it. God designed it. God planned every piece and every part of it. And he showed it to Moses. Either as a miniature form or he showed him into the heavens. What Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. So Moses becomes simply the uh, construction supervisor of the tabernacle. You understand that? God said, all right, I'm going to show it to you. This is the way I want it built. Every piece, every part, etc. And you're just going to be the construction supervisor, superintendent to build this tabernacle that I have showed you every detail. Amen. So that tabernacle then is absolutely perfect in everything. Its design is perfect. Every piece of furniture that's in it is absolutely perfect. Everything is perfect because it was designed by God himself and revealed to Moses. God showed him that pattern. He showed him and appointed him as the one to build this tabernacle. Say amen. All right, go to 1 Corinthians 15. And the scripture tells us there that it's the spiritual or the natural first and then the spiritual. 1 Corinthians 15. Are y'all with me so far? If you are, say praise the Lord. I'm having a problem here because my shadow is blocking the. All right, verse 46. How be it that? I'm going to give you time to find it. 1 Corinthians 15, 46. How be it that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. So what God does in the Old Testament with the priest and the tabernacle and and uh, various types and shadows and figures, sketches, etc. What he does is he gives you these natural things to teach you about something that's going to come that's spiritual. Are you with me? He doesn't give you the spiritual first and then say, okay, now that you're spiritual, keep the, nat- the, uh, the natural. He says, I give you the natural so you can understand spiritual truths and spiritual realities so that you can understand that that's just a shadow. But the real thing is found in Jesus. The real thing is found in the Spirit now. Say amen. And a lot of people miss it on that. They don't understand. They think that the Old Testament types and shadows, all right, are y'all hearing me? are the end of all things. They look to them to be the reality. Jesus is the reality. Say amen. Of the types and the shadows. All right, so it's the natural first, and then it's the spiritual. Now, why did God want them to build a tabernacle? Why? Let's go to Exodus 25. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to go all the way to Genesis. In order to understand why God wanted them to build a tabernacle, you have to start with the book of Genesis. Say amen. Genesis chapter 3. Is everybody clear now? All right. In Genesis 3 and verse 8, 
The Bible says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. This brings us to right after the fall of man into sin. What is he doing? He's hiding from God because he sinned against the Lord. Right? Fellowship has been broken. A disconnection has taken place. A divorce has happened. And you in the garden. Now I've told you this before. That's very unique to see a voice walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They could hear the voice of God as God approached them. God was talking to them. And the voice was walking in the garden in the cool of the day to do what? To fellowship with his creation. To fellowship with man. Divinity wanting to meet with man. Deity wanting to talk to man. And man talking back to him. Amen. In a relationship. In a fellowship. But now man has sinned and there's been a divorce, a disconnection. The relationship has been severed. A third party has come between the two. A third party named Satan. A third party named sin has stepped in to the relationship and severed the relationship that God had with man. But notice, even though they have fallen into sin, God is still looking for them. God is seeking to have that fellowship with them in a particular place. But they're no longer in that place. It's not geographically only. It's spiritual as well. They're no longer in a spiritual place that they once were. They're no longer geographically where they're supposed to be. They're hiding themselves in the trees of the garden. But God, because He loves Adam and Eve and because He loves mankind, He is showing up the same way He always does to fellowship with them and to have a relationship with them. But they are not in their right place. And because they're not in the right place and because now they're in sin, God can't connect with them. Because sin is in their life. And God can't fellowship with somebody that's in sin. You with me? Yes, He still loves them. He desires the fellowship. But the third party called sin, the third party called Satan, has come between the two in the relationship. And so now God is in, if you will, a dilemma. It's not God's dilemma. Man has put God in a dilemma because God wants to fellowship with them. God wants to be in a relationship with them, but He can't because of sin. Because He's holy. Say amen. Are y'all with me? Man has fallen. 
Man has divorced. Man has disconnected from God. Are y'all here tonight? He's broken fellowship with God. And God just can't go up there and grab him and hold on to him and say it's okay because sin, God is a holy God. You understand? He's not going to dirty himself with sin. But yet he still loves man. Say praise God. Amen. If you believe what I'm saying, believe what I'm saying. And not only that, not only has man sinned against God and sin separates a man from God, but the seed of the devil has now entered into them. Did you hear what I'm saying? The seed of that serpent that beguiled them in the garden is now on the inside of man. That simply means this, but I don't want you to kind of freak out on that statement, but what that simply means is now Adam and Eve are a part of the family of Satan. They have the seed of the serpent working on the inside of them. Breaking fellowship, divorce, the third party has come in and separated them. Well, what is God going to do? He is going to begin to seek to reconcile them. Seek to bring them back in relationship with Him. Seek to bring them to a place of communion with God again because He loves man who has sinned against Him. Does that make sense to you? But because now man is the seed of the serpent. In case you don't understand that tonight, there's two seeds in the world. There's the seed of God and there's the seed of the serpent. I will say it again, there's only two seeds in the world tonight. You are either the seed of the devil or you are the seed of, the, uh, of God. Amen. And when man sinned against God, he became a part of the family of Satan. Well, what's God going to do about this? Because he wants a relationship with man. Amen. Man's out of his place. He's not where he's supposed to be. And so the Bible tells us, let's go to Genesis 22. And you know the story. I told you you had to start in Genesis to understand why tabernacle. Genesis 22, the Bible says in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord said unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed. As the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the families or the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. You catch that? Where have you heard that scripture before? It's in Galatians 3.16 where it tells us that the seed of Abraham, that latter verse, verse 16 uh that we read. Let me make sure I got the verse right. Uh, verse 18, Genesis twenty-two, eighteen, And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. That seed there is referring to Jesus. Galatians three sixteen. 
he makes reference though above that, that in blessing I will bless thee, in multiplying I will multiply thy seed. That's the nation of Israel. Does that make sense? Now listen to what I'm about to tell you right now. When you read in the Bible about Jacob, Jacob is the natural descendants of Abraham. When you read in your Bible about Israel, Israel is the spiritual seed of Abraham. Now you can be a member of the natural family of Abraham and not be a member of the spiritual family of Abraham. Amen. You can also be a part of the spiritual family of God, Israel, and not be a part of natural Israel. But God is talking about here to Abraham that he's going to multiply his seed. Are y'all with me here today? As the stars of heaven, as the sand which is upon the sea. That's, that's speaking of natural Israel. Okay? Amen? But notice he says this. I want you to see it. I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven. That's the spiritual seed. I'm looking at the stars of heaven tonight. The spiritual seed of Abraham. And as the sand of the sea. That's natural Israel. You understand? And then he talks about, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and thy seed, now we're moving to one, Galatians 3.16 tells you, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now what you need to understand is that prior to this, all that Abraham had was a promise from God. And the promise was that Abraham and Sarah would give birth to a son. Sarah has never had any children. She's barren. Abraham is past childbearing. He's past the ability to conceive natural children. Are y'all with me? On his own. You understand? Sarah's 90 years old. Her womb is dead. Abraham's 99 years old. You understand? They're beyond childbearing age. That is the plan of God. God left them on the earth until Abraham could not produce children till his seed died. And Sarah's womb was dead. And then God said, I will multiply thy seed. So that Isaac is a miracle child from God himself. God, watch this, God put his seed in Abraham. And Abraham put that seed in Sarah. And when he did, the womb leaped like Isaac with laughter. Because God knew that the natural seed was the seed of the serpent. And so God said, I've got to let the natural die in Abraham. And I've got to leave Sarah in a condition where her womb is dead. So I can put my seed in her womb and cause it to leap with laughter like Isaac. So that that seed, verse 18, he's making reference to. Galatians 3.16 says that seed is Jesus. 
So what did God do? He is awesome. Because He knew that man at the fall, the disconnection, He knew that man, when man divorced him by sin, that he became a child of the devil and he was a seed of the serpent. So now God says, I've got to do something about that. I've got to bring another seed into the earth. And I've got to wait till Abraham's uh, ability to birth children is dead and Sarah's womb is dead so I can put my seed in her and she'll produce a promised child. A supernatural child by the power of God. A miracle baby named Isaac whose name means laughter. So God is in the process all the way back in the book of Genesis. He's in the process of seeking man because he loves man and wanted a fellowship with man. But there's a problem. Man has disconnected. Man has fallen out of relationship with God. There's sin in his life, and he is the seed of the serpent. So God says, I've got to bring another seed into the earth, Jesus. But I've got to put that seed first in a dead womb and in a man that can't produce a child. Supernatural. And ultimately, Jesus will come forth. Say amen. Now, Genesis 15, back up there, please. Hallelujah to the Lamb. In 15, Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast given what? No seed. God promised him a child, but Abraham says, You've given me no seed. That's God's plan. You understand? And lo, one born in my house is my heir. Well, let's... Go on down here. So we find out there's no seed. We found out how God's going to remedy that. He's going to do it supernaturally. Verse 13. God tells Abram this. Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs. What is that land? Egypt. Amen? And they shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. So God is going to take care of the seed problem, and now He's going to make provision for the place. Because Adam and Eve were out of their place. They were hiding in the trees of the garden. They were no longer in fellowship with God. So God says, I'm going to take care of that by giving you a provision for a place. Say amen. Say a place. Now, let's go over then to the book of Exodus. That makes sense. Why a tabernacle? Exodus 25 and verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, He's going to tell him to take up an offering. Why? Say amen. Verse 8. And let them, I'll get into the offering in a minute, but the reason for the offering 
is let them make me a sanctuary. Can you imagine? It's been 2,500 years since Adam fell because this tabernacle takes place in 1500 B.C. From Adam to Jesus is 4,000 years. That means for 2,500 years, God has been looking for a place where he can reconnect with fallen man, where he can dwell with man and fellowship with man and commune with man for 2,500 years. Can you imagine that? And everything that he's been doing is to lead up to this point right now in order to be able to fellowship. So he says, build me a sanctuary. The word sanctuary means a place where God resides. A sanctuary means a set-apart place for God to live in. Would you think about that? God has been in heaven all these years in the heavenly tabernacle. And now he says after 2,500 years, and of course I told you about the seed, he took care of that already. But after 2,500 years, he said, I want to move down from here to there. Now I'm not saying he's going to stop being there, but I want you to get it so you can understand it. He said, I don't want to just be up here. I want to be down there with you. I want to be down there in the midst of my people, in the midst of my creation. I want to fellowship. I want to commune with them. I want to dwell with them. Hallelujah. Isn't that an awesome God? He could have stayed up there and said, I'll fooey on all of you. But he said, no, I love my creation so much. If you will receive this, he said, I got to go down to earth. And I want to go to a place, a specific place in a wilderness and fellowship with my people there. And I want them to build that sanctuary where I can move in and be in the midst of my people's lives. Say amen. Give God praise. So, isn't God good? And so verse 9, he says, According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments, therefore even so shall you make it. Why? Verse 8, that I may dwell among them. I want to dwell among them. I want a tabernacle among them. Are y'all here tonight? That's why he's restoring the fellowship again. Amen. Say amen. Hallelujah to the Lamb. And he knows the only way he can do it is by the tabernacle, by the sacrifices, the offerings that will take place there that will bring man back into fellowship. Does that make sense to you? Now, obviously, there are people in fellowship with them before this who brought sacrifices to him, but I'm talking about where God dwells. He's going to dwell there in that tabernacle. He's going to live in that tabernacle among his people. Say praise the Lord tonight. Hallelujah. Go over to verse, in the same chapter 25. Verse 22. And there I will meet with thee. And I will commune with thee. So, so now we found out there's going to be a place, a particular place that God's going to move in and God's going to dwell in. And he says the reason for it is that I might meet with you. 
and I might commune with you. He said, I want to talk to you. I want to have fellowship with you. Hallelujah. Are you with me today? The word meet. He said that I might meet with you and commune with you. This tabernacle is called in the Hebrew, O-El Moed. O-El Moed means uh, uh, a, uh, a meeting place. Say a place to meet. O-El Moed. And then we have the word tabernacle used. It is the Hebrew word mishkan. Mishkan. Y'all probably heard that before used. Are y'all with me here so far? So now we know why God is built wanting this tabernacle. Because He wants the relationship back. He wants the disconnect to be removed from man. And so He says, I want you to build a pattern, a shadow, a figure, a sketch of something that's going to come in the future. And that is a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. It's a picture of Jesus' true tabernacle, a picture of the church where God is dwelling on the inside. Where is God tonight? First Corinthians, let's go with it. you got to get this in your head so you'll understand. This is why it's so important. In First Corinthians... That's the New Testament, by the way. Let you know that. Praise the Lord, church. We're going to have a time. Three sixteen. God says, "Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in." You. Now we know where he dwells. John 1 1, John 1 14, we know that God, Jesus is the true tabernacle, but now he says he wants you to get it that God, his spirit, is dwelling in you tonight. Know ye not that your body is the temple of God. The spirit of God is dwelling, 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 dwelling in you. Paul is saying, Know ye not? Because the, this is something the devil doesn't want you to know. If you are a born-again believer filled with the Holy Ghost, speaking with other tongues, the devil doesn't want you to know that God's living inside of you. Say amen. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? which you have of God, and you are not your own. So now, we become the tabernacle of God. Exodus 25 says, The Lord speaks unto Moses. You need to understand that when he gives him this command, Moses' location is in Mount Sinai. He's getting the law, the Ten Commandments, and all the other laws that are adjacent to it, and he's getting the tabernacle plan. He's in Mount Sinai. Amen? God says, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart. Ye shall take my offering. Wow. This is fascinating. God says, 
in order for me to show you my stuff, my stuff, in order for me to manifest my stuff to you, you have to give me your stuff. Now, when we get to Sinai, that means God has already delivered Israel out of Egyptian bondage. He's already defeated the false gods of Egypt who were visible gods made by the hands of men. Gods that were produced by man. And when, when Moses walked in before Pharaoh and he says, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't see him. I see this God and that God and this God and that God. Visible gods that man made with his own hand. But he said, I don't see this God you're talking about. Show him to me. Who is this Lord that I should obey him? He had a problem with worshiping the, the God of the Hebrews. Because the God of the Hebrews is invisible. He had a hard time worshiping the, the Hebrew, the God of the Hebrews, because this God was not produced by man. And this God is invisible. Are y'all here? And you and I need to get a hold of that tonight. Because if you're not careful, you'll fall in the same trap of Pharaoh. Because you can't see God, you have a problem in the area of worship. Do not be a failure in the area of worship because you can't see Him. The God of the Hebrews, Jesus, is invisible. Hallelujah. And Pharaoh had a heart. He is a problem for him. Show me, who is this God that I should obey Him? I don't see Him here. I see all these other things. I produce them with my hands and I worship them. But an invisible God telling me to let the people go. Amen. And so what does God do? He begins to send ten judgments upon the land of Israel. And He judges in every one of those judgments. He is judging one of those false gods. Say praise the Lord. So at this point when we find Moses, they've already left Egypt. Oh. Five in a rank. Say five in a rank. Exodus 13. Talks about how they came out in the margin of a Bible that say they left five in a rank. They left in order. Two, two to six million people. Six hundred thousand men by foot. And they say, okay, six hundred thousand men by foot. If you take the women and children, they come up with an approximate figure of people of two to six million people that walked out of the land of Egypt. If it was two million people, the line would have been 230 miles long. Five in a rank. This was not a little thing that God did. 230 miles long. Say amen. Five in a rank. Orderly. Orderly. Because God is a God of order. He's not a God of confusion. And when they came out of Egypt, five in a rank, two million. Minimum two million. Walked out 230 miles long. It was a big thing that God did. And as I said earlier, when they camped out, it was 60, 60 by 8. 60 long, 60 miles long and 8 miles wide. 480 square miles. That's how big this operation is. My God, when He does things, He does it in a big way. 
When you think about this God, you always remember that when God does something, He does it in a big way. This was not a little operation. This was huge. They crossed the Red Sea. Pharaoh drowned, etc., etc. Came to Mount Sinai. And God gives the law and gives the tabernacle to Moses. Say Amen. Now you got to follow the line here. Because in 32 verse 1, Exodus 32 verse 1, the Bible says that when Moses came down on the mountain, they were worshiping a golden calf. Something they could see with their eyes. Something they could produce with their own hands. You see what I'm saying tonight? Dancing naked around a false god made by their own hands. And when Moses sees that, he takes those tables of the law and he throws them to the ground and he, the law is broken. Say amen. But he's got in the other hand the tabernacle which is going to restore man back to God. But here's what I'm saying to you tonight. Is that when God asked them for an offering, Exodus 32, verse 1 and 2, is in the background. Because the offering is not even taken up until after Exodus 32. Are you with me? Sometimes you read Exodus 25, you think it's way back here. Exodus 32 is way up here, 35. No, look at the history. God tells Moses in the mountain what to do. He goes down out of the mountain with the law and with the pattern of the tabernacle. And when he gets there, the people are worshiping idols. They made a golden calf with the earrings. Say amen. But when Moses is up in the mountain, while they're down there worshiping the golden calf, which they made with their own gold, God says, go back down there and tell them to give me an offering. Did you hear what I said? And when Moses walks down to the mountain, they're already, they've already built the golden calf with their earrings. He, they've already built the golden calf with their jewelry. Are you here tonight? But he's got the plan from God, the tabernacle, that they are to give an offering. You know what God is doing here? He knows they're down here worshiping a false god. He's going to say, how much do you love me? He's going to put him to the test. You took your gold, you took your earrings, and you made a gold calf out of it. Hallelujah. Do you love me as much as you love that old God you used to serve? Because the same earrings that they used to build the golden calf with is going to be used to build that tabernacle. And what God is testing them in how much do you really love me? Do you love me as much as the false god you were worshiping? I'll bring practical application to you tonight. You remember when you were in the world and you were dancing naked around a false god? Am I preaching to anybody here tonight? Won't you just all get a job and go to work and let's not have church anymore. Do you love God? The invisible God of the Hebrews, that's the only true God that there is. Do you love Him as much as you do a false God? 
And if you do, God, the true God is saying, I want an offering from you. You're going to prove it. And God, He doesn't get embarrassed and He doesn't get nervous about asking you for money. Because it is a test. How much do you love this God? The only God that there is. You used to spend your money on drugs and alcohol and cigarettes and partying. You danced naked around a false God that you made with your own hands. And now God says, all right, I'm going to test you to see how much you really love me. Will you give me as much as you gave the old God you used to serve? Hallelujah! You used to sing in the world. Will you sing for me in church? used to spend your money on drugs and alcohol and cigarettes. But now that you know the true and living God, will you bring your money to me? I will tell you, by personal experience as a pastor, anybody that does not bring their tithes and offerings to God is not real. That's my experience as a pastor. And my experience as a pastor. Anybody that doesn't bring their tithes and offerings are not going to stay very long in this house. That's been my experience. Because where your treasure is, there shall your heart be also. And if your treasure is not in building the kingdom of God, then we know and God knows where your heart is. So when God comes to you and requires the tithe, an offering is free will to build His buildings. But the tithe is not free will. The tithe is mandatory. Say hallelujah to the Lamb. The tithe does not belong to you. It belongs to God. It's not up to your choice. Your free will offerings are up to your choice. But the tithe is mandatory. So God says through Moses. And he wasn't, God wasn't nervous and God wasn't shaky about asking for the offering. Jesus. Do you love God as much as the false God that you used to worship? Some of you used to worship money. You used to worship your job. You used to worship your car. You used to worship yourself. And you threw money at yourself. And you threw money to party. Now God says, bring it to me. What you used to give to the false God, bring it to me. And he's not bashful about it. He's not nervous about it. He comes to you and he tests you. How much do you love God? Everybody say in Jesus' name. I got some fired up in hand, right? Moses, take up an offering. 
Because material is needed. Seven things are required for the tabernacle. If you study Exodus 25 and Exodus 35 and so on and so forth, there are seven things recorded that is necessary for the building of the tabernacle and one of them is materials are needed. God says, in order for me to real my, reveal myself to you, my stuff to you, you're going to have to bring me your stuff. But before they could ever do that, they had to get out of Egypt. Because God will not let you stay in Egypt. you got to get up and move out of Egypt. Because Egypt's a type of the world. Satan's a type of the devil. Are you here tonight? If you're going to serve this God, you got to move out of that. You are not going to be accepted until you get out of Egypt. And then you're going to bring God an offering so he can have the materials necessary to build this sanctuary. Are you here tonight? Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. Notice it doesn't say tithe here. It's an offering. It's free will. Any man that's willing, that has a willing heart, literally that their heart has been impelled by the Spirit of God to give it. The offering, the Hebrew word there, for offering literally means something that belongs to you. This offering is your possession. The Hebrew word means a possession that belongs to you that you are going to use for your pleasure. It's your spending money. God had already told Abraham, when you come out, you're coming out with great substance. God gave it to him in Egypt. When they left Egypt, where did they get this great substance? It came from God, hallelujah, to the Lamb. God had already told Abraham hundreds of years before, when you come out and you're coming out, when you do, you're going to come out with great substance. All those years they worked and served Pharaoh, God said, I'm going to make sure Pharaoh pays you for every day, for every hour. Hallelujah to the Lamb. And now it comes time for them to bring an offering from the substance that God gave them that they took from the Egyptians. And he says to them, I want what belongs to you for your personal pleasure. And I want you to, the word offering also means to lift it up. He said, I want you to take that which you were going to use for your personal pleasure. And he said, I want you to lift it to a higher purpose. I want you to give it to God. And when you give it to God, it's going to be on a higher purpose. Give the Lord praise in this house. I will tell you tonight, that's why everything we have in this church, everything, all that we have here is completely paid for. It is debt free completely because of God's people willfully being impelled in their heart. Their heart is in it. They want to do it. That's why everything that we have here in relationship to this church is debt free. Glory be to God. Glory be to God. 
And many of you have taken money that you were going to use for personal pleasure and gave it to God. You say, well, God wants it. Yeah, he's not nervous about it. Well, he already wants 10%. That's mandatory. That's the starting place. And then on top of that, he wants offerings too. How much does God want? I give my tithe and I hear God telling me give more. How much does God want? 25%? 30%? No, he wants 100%. He wants everything that you and I have. But he's so good that he says if you bring the part, the first fruits or the tithe, he said I'll count it as the whole. When you bring a tithe to God, an offering to God above your tithe, God counts the other 90% as having been given by you from your hand to God. He counts it as the whole. He doesn't want 25%. He wants 100%. But He's so good, He says you get to keep 90%. And I'll count it like you gave the whole thing if you just bring the tithe. Say praise the Lord. Jesus! How much money did you spend on entertainment? How much money? Are you with me tonight? That is the very money that God's asking for. Your entertainment money. Say amen. Now God's good, isn't he? I said God is good. Well, tonight we have abundance in our church accounts, thank God, because of your willing heart to give above your tithe. We have abundance. And tomorrow, we're going to start beautifying this parking lot. They're going to fix all the busted up areas on the parking lot. They're going to seal all the cracks. And they're going to uh, 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 cover it uh, with two coats of covering. Seal coat, they call it. Exodus, Exodus chapter 27. In the word of the Lord, tonight we're going to teach you on the brazen altar, the brass altar, Exodus chapter 27, beginning with verse 1. All right, Exodus chapter 27, beginning with verse 1. Brother Bloss is also going to, to try to get us some interaction. Back there? Right here. Okay, well, do your best. If you can't, we're going on. Amen. The Word of God is the most important thing. It's not that you have all the pictures. In fact, pictures sometimes distract me. So we'll see what happens here, see if they get that up. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 27, verse 1. If you have it, say amen. Well, we come to a very, very holy, holy 
piece of furniture in the tabernacle. It is the brass altar. In fact, it is called most holy unto the Lord. It is so important to God that every piece of furniture in the tabernacle of Moses could be put on the inside of that brass altar. Which teaches you that everything that we have in God, all the joys that we have in God, all the provisions that we have in God is because of the cross, because of Calvary. So it is the largest piece of furniture in all of the tabernacles. So Exodus chapter 27, beginning with verse 1. And while you're turning there, those of you who are taking notes on the tabernacle make an adjustment from last week. I think I said it would take 20,000 tons of firewood to cook their food. I added, I think, a zero. So it should be 2,000 tons of firewood. I, as soon as I said it, I knew I was off. So it's 2,000 tons of firewood. Okay, if you're taking notes, make that adjustment. Exodus chapter 27, beginning with verse 1. Thou shalt make an altar of sheetum wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. Thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes, and his shovels, and his basins, and his flesh hooks, and his fire pans. All the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass. Thou shalt make for it a grate of network of brass, and upon the net shalt thou make four brassen rings in the four corners thereof. Thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar, beneath that the net may be given to the midst of the altar. Thou shalt make stays for the altar, stays of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. Hollow with board shalt thou make it, as it was showed thee in the mount, so shalt they make it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. We ask your blessing, Lord, to be upon the reading of your holy word. We ask, God, tonight that you would touch each and every life through the preaching of it. Anoint me and inspire me to declare it. Touch every heart and every ear to receive it. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Everybody said in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. Verse 1, Exodus 27, And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood. This is not the first altar in the Bible. There are other altars in the book of Genesis that were set up by men in order to worship God, to be able to come into the presence of God because man had fallen into sin. So he needed a sacrifice, bloodshed. Blood represents life. The wages of sin is death, so he needed a substitute to take his place. And so altars are seen before this particular altar that we will study tonight. 
the Bible says this particular altar is made of shidem wood or shidem wood. This wood is very unique wood. Now you can't see it in this picture right here. Maybe uh, when we get some more pictures, we'll be able to show it to you. But this altar was actually made out of wood and then it was overlaid with the brass. So this was a picture basically of the altar itself. Now, uh, this altar was five cubits by five cubits. That means it's approximately seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet square. It rose three cubits high, which is about four and a half feet tall. So seven and a half square by four and a half feet tall. And as I said, it was made out of shadow wood. It's overlaid with brass. Shidem wood is acacia wood. It's found in the wilderness. It is white in color. It is a tree that is twisted. In fact, that tree is so twisted that the heart inside of the tree is twisted to the point that they say that even the heart of that tree is rotten. This twisted shadow wood with the heart that is even rotten on the inside of it has long thorns, about six inches long. It is so hard, that wood, shadow wood, is so hard that insects cannot penetrate that wood. So they coined a term for that wood. They called it the incorruptible wood. And that term incorruptible will ring a bell to you because the Bible says that Jesus' body saw no corruption. It did not decay when he died. So this incorruptible wood, this everlasting wood, this wood that's twisted, this wood that is rotten in the heart, insects can't penetrate it, is a type of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Say the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in His humanity, He became sin for us. He did not have a rotten heart. He was not twisted. But He became sin for us, or literally the sin offering for us, and took our place on the cross. This altar is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. When we look at that shadow wood, we see in that shadow wood ourselves. We see that we are twisted as a people. We see that our hearts are rotten to the core. And we see that we need a Savior to come and die for us on a cross and shed His blood in order to redeem us. So, God came in the form of a man. And that that wood, that shining wood, is a picture of the humanity of Jesus Christ who took upon Himself our nature, God coming in human form so that He could die for our sin, our crookedness, and our rottenness. And so God told Him to make that altar out of shidem wood. He says it's five cubits long, five cubits broad. That's about 18 inches per cubit. The altar shall be four square. The height thereof shall be three cubits. Amen. So when we look at the dimensions of it, Five cubits by five cubits, seven and a half feet by three cubits high, four and a half feet. All these numbers are a type of things to come. Just like the altar is a type of the Lord Jesus and His sacrifice for us, 
The numbers themselves are a type of things to come. In fact, the number five in the tabernacle is the primary number throughout the tabernacle itself. The number five speaks of grace. And so we have five by five square here, cubits, uh, speaking of the grace of God. It also speaks of the five wounds that Jesus experienced when he hung upon that altar or that cross. He was nailed in his hands. There's two. He was nailed in his feet. There's three, four. And he was pierced in his side by a sword. That's five. So the number five is connected to the cross, grace, and the five wounds in the body of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that it was three cubits high. The number three in Scripture speaks of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead after he died for us on the cross. We know that he was in the tomb for three days and three nights, fulfilling the work of the atonement. So the number three cubits tall speak of the three days of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ and then followed by his resurrection from the dead. It also speaks, the number three speaks of the Trinity. Of what? Not a trinity of persons. There's no such thing as three separate persons in the Godhead. Amen? If this speaks of Jesus Christ and His death, there's only one there. But the three cubits speak of the three manifestations of the one God. You don't have three separate altars here. You got one altar. So you with me so far? Everybody understand? The Bible tells us that that shittim wood was going to be overlaid uh, with brass. Amen. Say praise the Lord. Brass in the tabernacle and in the Word of God speaks of justice. It speaks of God's judgment. So God's justice will be fulfilled on the cross and His judgment will fall upon the Lord Jesus Christ uh, on Calvary as He hangs there for us. So brass speaks of judgment. This brass as I said, overlaid that altar. Are y'all with me up to this point? Say praise the Lord if you are. You will notice that this altar also had four horns on it. Horns on each corner. These horns were not connected later. They were a part of the brass themselves that was placed on the side of the wood. Okay, you with me so far? And we'll talk about these horns in just a little bit, what they represent. But I want, brother, to uh, bring up for me not the golden altar, but the brass altar. And let's look at some more pictures here that will be helpful uh, for you. Okay? So, brother, you will remember that there is maybe animation on this as well. Now, you will notice something about the brass altar in this picture in comparison to this picture. The picture over here looks more elongated, doesn't it? In fact, this picture over here looks twice as tall, uh, twice the height as it is wide. You understand what I'm saying? And the reason why that picture looks like that is because the Jewish people, in their interpretation of the Scripture, said they started the three cubits from the middle of the altar. Okay? So basically it's taller in their in their minds as to what that altar looked like. Okay, say amen. 
All right, so let's let's get an animation. Do you have an animation on that, brother? Okay, let's go to the next picture then. All right, here we go. Back up, please. Okay, look at the animation on this one here. That's the Scheidenwood I was talking about. You see those four horns there on the top? Okay, let's go to the next picture. We'll just run through these. That's one horn right there. Notice it looks different there in their depiction than the horns on this particular altar does. Go ahead. Okay, here we have the five vessels that are used uh, in the altar. And we'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, Brother Bloss, do we not have any animation on those previous pictures? Okay. That's the animation I'm looking for. Yeah. So we do have picture animations on it. All right, you see how that brass is covering the shouting wood there? That's how they did it right there. They covered the outside of that shouting wood with brass. Okay, let's go to the next one, please. Uh, let's back up. I'm sorry. Let's look at the horns. Okay. Let's talk about the horns on that altar. Okay. Notice there are four horns on the altar here. You see that? Four horns. Horns in the Bible speak of power and strength. It's the power and strength of the animal. Okay. But we have four of him, four horns here. So it speaks of strength in God, salvation in God, security in God, and power in God. Strength, salvation, security, and power. Also speaks of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because they present Jesus Christ in His sacrificial death for us in the four Gospels. If you understand that, say praise the Lord. These four horns speak of four directions, north, south, east, and west, that this gospel was going to be preached. It's going to be preached to the whole world. All four directions the, the gospel would be preached. So we have the four horns depicting that as well. In the Bible, the scripture tells us in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 14, if you'll turn there, We have a reference here of a man coming and grabbing a hold of the horns of the altar. The Bible says, But if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, thou shalt take him from my altar that he may die. Well, what does that mean? It means that that man has fled to the altar. Why did he flee to the altar? To lay hold of the horns of the altar. Let's go to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1, we have a man by the name of Adonijah. This man has fled to the altar of God.
verse 50, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 50. And Adonijah feared because of Solomon. Now remember, he tried to usurp the throne. He tried to take the throne of David. All right? Adonijah's in trouble now. The Bible says, And Adonijah feared because of Solomon and arose and went and caught hold on the horns of the altar. He grabbed a hold of those horns right there. When he grabbed a hold of one of those horns, he was saying, I'm grabbing hold of security. When he grabbed a hold of one of those horns, he said, I'm grabbing hold of salvation. I'm grabbing hold of power. I'm grabbing hold of the strength of God. And if a person can make it and grab a hold of the horns of that altar right there, nobody could touch them. Because they found a refuge at that altar right there. And if you touch that man that's touching that altar, you would be put to death. Because that would be as if you touched God Himself. But we have one exception in Second First Kings 2 in just a moment. And I'll explain it to you. But Adonijah made his way and he grabbed a hold of those horns of that altar right there and he found refuge. And Solomon says, okay, I'm going to let you go for now and I'm going to give you time to prove yourself. So because he grabbed a hold of those, those horns of the altar, he found security, salvation, strength, and power and Solomon the king let him go. But in 1 Kings, the Bible says in chapter 2, we have a different outcome. Verse 28, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 28. Then tidings came to Joab, for Joab had turned after Adonijah, though he turned not after Absalom. And Joab fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord, caught hold on the horns of the altar. And it was told King Solomon that Joab was fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord, and behold, he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benai, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go fall upon him. And Benai came to the tabernacle of the Lord and said unto him, Thus saith the king, Come forth. He said, Nay, but I will die here. And Benai brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. And the king said unto him, Do as he has said, and fall upon him and bury him, that thou mayest take away the innocent blood which Joab shed from me and from the house of my father. And the Lord shall return his blood upon his own head. See, we have a different outcome here now. In First Kings chapter 1, Adonijah grabbed a hold of the horns of the altar, and he had rebelled against Solomon. And Solomon said, I'll let you go. I'll give you time to prove yourself. Joab, in his rebellion, same context, grabs a hold of the horns of the altar and he dies. He did not find refuge there. You know why? Because he sinned with greater light than Adonijah. And so as we look at the scripture, you will find that the cross teaches two things. It's life unto those that will embrace it, but it's death to those who reject it. It's death to those who perish because they do not embrace the finished work 
of Jesus Christ on the cross. So that's why we have two people here. One lived and one died. That cross will determine either my life or my death. If you reject it, if you reject Jesus, if you reject His finished work, then you will perish. It's a minister of death unto death. Or it's a minister of life unto life. It's also a picture of the two thieves hanging upon the cross. Uh, next to Jesus, one on either side. One believed and went to paradise with the Lord. And the other one didn't believe and he died. And he was right next to the cross. So we see these, these horns were used to be a refuge. People running and finding strength and salvation, security and power. That's what we find in Calvary. When we run to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find security in God. We find strength in God. We find power in God. And we find salvation in God if we embrace what He did for us on that cross. If we reject that work, the only thing that remains for us is death or to perish. The Bible tells us, go back over to Exodus again, 27. These four horns are made out of brass in the same book of Exodus. I won't go there tonight for the sake of time. But you will find that these horns were tipped with blood. The blood was applied to those horns. In the same book of Exodus, you will find that there was anointing oil placed on those horns as well. The picture of Jesus Christ, full of the Spirit of the living God, anointed as a man by the Spirit of God. And He is the carrier of the blood. The blood is what brings strength, salvation, security, and power. Are you all with me today? Another reason for those horns on the altar is found in the book of Psalms. In Psalms 118, Psalm 118, verse 27. God is the Lord which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords even unto the horns of the altar. Bind the sacrifice with cords even unto the horns of the altar. So what they did, when they placed those sacrifices that had been slain, the blood has been drained or shed out of the bodies of those sacrifices, you would think, why would they have to bind those animals on that altar? Why would they have to tie them down? Because there might have been a little bit of life left in them, a little reflex left in them. And as they laid them on that altar, they might kick with a reflex and fall off the altar. So the Bible tells us in that verse, that they literally had to bind those sacrifices or tie those sacrifices to that altar as if they were not willing to be on that altar. So God said, you tie them down on that altar. Unlike the Lord Jesus Christ, when He came and died on the cross, He willfully died. He chose to die. But we also see Jesus hanging on the cross bound by nails on that cross. And so in that case, it's the cords of love that are holding him there. 
it really wasn't the nails that held him on that cross. It was his love for you. And so God said in Psalm 118, as I read to you there, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Jesus was bound on Calvary for us. And what kept him there was his love for us. Amen. Now, for us, though, as individuals, this altar also speaks of something to us. It speaks of us repenting. Sometimes when we come to God, there's still a little bit of life. And we want to get off of that altar. We don't want to die to ourselves. We want our own way and we want our own will. And sometimes we'll come and we'll repent. And then we'll go back and we'll take up the very sin that we just asked God to forgive us for. The reason why we're able to do that is to come to an altar and pray and ask God to forgive us and repent and then turn around and go back and do the same thing is because we really didn't lay it all on the altar. It got off of the altar. And when you and I come to God and we repent, I don't care who it is in this church tonight, including this pastor, when you come to God and you get ready to repent and change your life, when you put yourself on that altar, you're going to want to get up and get off of that altar. You're not going to want to stay on that altar. Amen? So you've got you to tie the sacrifice to the horns of the altar so it can't get off. You've got to put yourself on that altar and when it tries to get off the altar, you say you're not getting off the altar. Say praise the Lord. So that's what those horns represent in the Scripture. How many of y'all have been through some things in your life where you repented of it, you went right back out and picked it back up again? It got up off the altar. You got to tie it down. You got to love God enough that when you come to Him and lay your life down, and put yourself on that altar, not for your own sin. Jesus is the only one who can die for your sin. But when you put yourself on the altar, it's for service. And sometimes you're going to want to get off because the price is too great. You've got to bind it. You've got to tie that sacrifice to the altar so we won't get up off of that altar. That individual made his way to that altar right there. Everything that was going on around that altar was death. And those animals right there, they didn't want to die. They didn't die willfully. But they were a substitute. They're a type of Jesus. They had to tie those, those animals to that altar. There it is. Burning. Killed the animals. The blood was shed. Then they burned the flesh of the animals on that altar. They had to go through that gate right there to get to that altar. And once they walked through that gate, there was no way into the presence of God, no way into the tabernacle until you first came to that altar right there. Shows you how important the cross is. Shows you how important it is to repent. Because you can't get in the presence of God until you lay yourself down on an altar. And you ask God to forgive you of all your sins. That prepares you to go into His presence, which is a picture of the tabernacle. They walked through that gate. 
They placed their hands on their sacrifice, transferred their sin to that sacrifice, and that sacrifice was died, died in their place, was substitute, because they had sinned against God. And that's the only way to find forgiveness. That's the only way to get e eternal life. It's to walk through that gate. That gate's Jesus Christ. If you want eternal life, you've got to go through that gate. If you want forgiveness of sin, you've got to go to that altar. Everybody had to go to that altar. Everybody. Every Israelite, every priest, high priest, everybody. Nobody could bypass that altar right there. It's the only way that you can get eternal life. And it's the only way that you can get forgiveness of sin. But notice where the altar is located. It's located in the open air. It's not in the tabernacle like the rest of the furniture is. There's two pieces of furniture in the outer enclosure that's outside. That brass altar and that brass laver. So when the sinner approaches God, he walks through that gate. He brings a sacrifice, going to be a substitute for his sin. That animal is going to be slain. After he transfers his sin to that animal's head, and then that animal is going to be uh, roasted right there on that fire till it turns to ashes. When that sinner approaches God, he approaches that altar, there's nothing over his head. There's no covering over his head. There's no protection over that sinner. Over that sinner's head. Please, please get the control of the kids, please. There is absolutely no covering for that sinner. When he comes in the presence of God, it's a picture of when the sinner comes into church. They start trembling and they start shaking and they wonder what's going on. Why am I shaking? Why am I trembling? Because they're in the open air. They're under the judgment of God. And until their sins are put under the blood of Jesus Christ, what they feel is God's wrath coming on them. That's why they feel like they do. They feel God's wrath because every time the Spirit of God comes down, it always comes down in wrath until it hits the innocent blood. And when it hits the innocent blood, the Spirit of God turns from wrath to mercy when it hits the innocent blood. And the people of God, we can be singing about the blood of Jesus. We can be worshiping God and, and thanking God for His blood and His forgiveness. And we're feeling real good. But the sinner comes in and there's no covering for him right now. His sin isn't under the blood right now. And he's exposed. And he's sitting there and he's feeling the judgment of God. He wants to run out the front door. He can't wait to get out of church. And we're over here having a good time in Jesus' name, singing about the blood. And we don't understand why the sinner man or the sinner lady is so scared. Because God's coming down on them. And if the blood's not on your life, the wrath of God is on you. And it's going to make you want to run because you're feeling God's judgment. You're feeling uncomfortable. But when you get the blood applied to your life, then you start singing just like the rest of the church. You don't feel His wrath anymore. You don't feel His judgment anymore. All you feel is His mercy. Because you've got the blood applied to your life and your sin is under the blood. Until you get your sin under the blood, you're going to be trembling.
You're going to be shaking. You're going to be full of fear. Amen. Give God praise in this house. So he approaches that altar and it's in an open air. There's no covering until he gets his sin taken care of. All he can expect from God is God's wrath coming upon him. That's the way it always comes down. Say praise the Lord. Go back to that altar. We'll look at it. So again, it's a picture of the cross. It's a picture of our need of repentance. How many of y'all want to lay hold of those horns tonight to find salvation? Say praise the Lord. Exodus 27, verse 3. We're going to go also over here to this picture. And we're going to look at the vessels that were used to work at the altar. Thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes, his shovels, his basins, his flesh hooks, his fire pans, all the vessels thereof thou shalt make of what? Brass. Every tool that was used at that altar was made out of brass. Speaks again of the judgment of God. There's five of these tools, five vessels that are used. It speaks of the fivefold ministry that's in the church. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Fivefold ministry in the church. Doing the service of the Lord. As we look at these vessels, the Bible says one particular vessel, the scripture says, handles the ashes. If you look at verse 3, thou shalt make his pants to receive his what? Ashes. Let me talk to you about the ashes. The ashes that they got out of that altar was proof or evidence that a sacrifice had been made. If you didn't have ashes that you could go and gather from that altar, you had no evidence or no proof that a sacrifice had ever been made. No evidence whatsoever. So they gathered those ashes. Those ashes were the evidence and proof that a sacrifice had been made. And it speaks of Jesus Christ after He died on the cross. His body are those ashes. His dead body that was hanging on that tree there. Look at Him hang there on the cross. When He's hanging there, His dead body, that's the ashes, having been consumed by the fiery wrath of God as He became the sin offering for us. His body, His dead body, was proof that the sacrifice had been made. Say amen. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea went and got that body, got those ashes, if you will. I'm giving you typology fulfillment here. Took that body off of that cross and went and put it in a virgin tomb. In a tomb that nobody had ever been buried in before. They got the ashes. The proof that the sacrifice had been made, they put the virgin-born Son of God in a virgin tomb in a place 
in a clean place where nobody had ever been buried. In Leviticus chapter 6, the Bible says that when they gathered those ashes off this altar, they took those ashes outside of the camp and they put those ashes in a clean place. Say outside the camp. In a clean place. Leviticus chapter 6. That's exactly what they did with Jesus when they took His body off the tree. They took Him and they put Him in a clean place. A place where nobody had ever been laid before outside the camp. It's a proof that the sacrifice had been made. wonder why God said take the ashes from that altar and take them outside the camp. Well, you will remember that after Israel worshipped the golden calf, apostate religion, while Moses was out there getting the Ten Commandments and and getting the tabernacle, the plan for the tabernacle. Israel was down there worshiping the golden calf. Apostate religion. And you will see in the book of Exodus, you, you can read, I believe, Exodus 32 and 33, you'll see that Moses pitched a tabernacle outside the camp. It wasn't this tabernacle, but it was another tabernacle. I don't know if you knew that, but Moses didn't just have one tabernacle. He had two tabernacles. And right after the golden calf worship, the apostasy of the people, the Bible says that Moses pitched the tabernacle outside the camp. So the Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified outside the camp. Then they took his body down and they buried his body outside the camp in a virgin tomb in a clean place. What is that speaking to us of? The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, it says, let us go outside the camp, bearing his reproach. That means that you're going to have to separate yourself from apostate religion. If you want to be saved, if you want to be right with God, there's an apostate church in the world right now. And you're going to have to separate yourself from that apostate church. You're going to have to go outside the camp of religion and be connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. When they crucified him on the cross, they crucified him outside of Judaism. Because Judaism at that time was an apostate system. So they took him and crucified him outside of an apostate religion. Just like Moses pitched that tabernacle outside of where apostate religion took place. You want to serve God, you're going to have to separate yourself from false church systems that are in the world. Say amen. Outside the camp, take those ashes and put them in a clean place. Those ashes were used to purify the priesthood. They would take water and they would put ashes, those ashes, those sacrificed in that water. They would sprinkle that water with ashes. The ashes of a red heifer particularly. And they would sprinkle those ashes upon the priesthood for purification. Those ashes in water were used to cleanse and purify the blood of Jesus and what He did on the cross. The only thing that will cleanse you from sin and purify you from sin. Those ashes were used for purification and to set the priesthood apart. Those ashes were used by people when they wanted to get in humility before God, when they wanted to humble themselves before God, 
and sacrifices they had made to God, burnt offerings, they took those ashes home with them. And when they got ready to humble themselves before God, the Bible says they sat in sackcloth and ashes. And the ashes they were sitting, covered in, came from a sacrifice that they had made. So they sat there in the presence of God with the ashes of a sacrifice that had been made in the past. Evidence that there was a sacrifice that they had given to God. Evidence of a consecration and a dedication to God. And as they want to humble themselves before God, they sat in the sackcloth, covered themselves in ashes, and they're saying, God, I'm humbling myself right now before you. My prayers backed up with my sacrifice. I'm not bringing a cheap prayer to you. But my prayers backed up by a sacrifice and they would cover themselves in ashes and humble themselves before God. It was the evidence of sacrifice. It brought stability in their life. It brought stability in their minds. If you're looking for stability today, you need to get in your Jesus. He's the ashes. You need to humble yourself before God. And if you'll do that, God will honor that humility. That's what they did with those ashes. Also, the Bible tells us, I hope you're getting this tonight. The Bible tells us those ashes were taken and put in a clean place outside the camp, separating from apostate religion. Say a clean place. Not a dirty place. A clean place. I think you are also aware of the fact that outside the camp, outside the tabernacle, there were other places that were not clean. God said, take the ashes and put them in a clean place. Jesus undefiled. He was pure. His sacrifice was pure. Put them in a clean place. But there were places outside the camp that were not clean. The Bible says they took the dead outside the camp and they buried the dead outside the camp. And that became an unclean place. The leopard was driven out of the camp of Israel. And everywhere he went, he had to cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Because the leper and leprosy is a type of sin. So he was put out of the camp in an unclean place. Apostates, apostates, people who had gone away from God in apostasy, were stoned to death outside the camp of Israel in an unclean place. It's a picture of hell. It's a picture of where all the unregenerate humanity will end up being when they die. Hell is a place of the unclean. Hell is a place of the unregenerate. So in the Bible, you've got outside the camp, the clean places. It's a picture of Jesus Christ's work on the cross, but it's also a picture of the church. When you walked in here tonight, you walked in, I pray, into a clean place. It's a picture of the heavenly city, the Jerusalem of God, where the church eventually will spend eternity with God. That's the clean place. The church is a clean place. The heavenly city, Jerusalem, is a clean place. 
That's where the people of God are going to be in a clean place. But the unregenerate are on the outside in an unclean place. And they won't find themselves in that heavenly city. They will find themselves in the lake of fire because they chose to live an unclean life. I'm glad today that Jesus became my sacrifice. They took His body and put it in a clean place and three days later, He rose again from the dead. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, it tells you about people that will not be in heaven. People commit adultery. People who are drunkards. People like that. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 says, will not enter in the kingdom of heaven. But he goes on, he says, and such were some of you but you're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We went down in water in the name of Jesus. And His sacrifice at Calvary and those ashes by the resurrection of the dead cleansed us from all sin so that we can spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ, giving praise in this house. Such were some of you. Doesn't say you're that tonight. It says you were that. But you've been washed. You've been cleansed. You've been baptized in Jesus' name. You've been filled with the Holy Ghost. Speak with other tongues. You're no longer outside. You're inside in a clean place. The church. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what those ashes speak of. Those tools you see. We have a shovel here to gather those ashes. Sweep them up so they can be carried to that clean place. We've got these tongs here, these prongs. They hook the meat and position the meat over into the fire so it would burn. Those tongues are a picture of Jesus' movement on the cross dying for us, for our sin. We see that fire pan over here. The left, my left hand side. They, that fire pan was used to gather the fire, fiery coals off of the altar. And they carried the fire off of that altar. They carried that into the tabernacle, the altar of incense, the golden altar. And they put that fire on that altar. They got it from that sacrificial altar. They put it in that pan. And Aaron, the only one who had the golden censer, nobody else had the golden censer, walked in there and offered the incense unto God in the tabernacle. That beautiful aroma filled the whole tabernacle. It came out, filled the outer court and remove the stink and the smell and the stench of death that was on that altar. But that altar of incense fire came from that altar right there. So that your prayer, your praise, the incense, your worship unto God is all connected to Calvary 
That's the only reason why you and I can worship God. It's the only reason why you and I can pray tonight. It's because a sacrifice has been made for us. And that's what makes our incense valid. Valid. It's because of this sacrifice of that altar. We have a story in the Bible in Leviticus chapter 10. If you look at Leviticus chapter 9 right before that, the fire of God came and ignited the... It lit the fire on that altar to begin with. Leviticus 9. Brother, I, I think I'm, I'm pretty much done with this. If you want to go to the interaction, I want you to walk up the, the ramp, all right, to the fire. Leviticus chapter 10, we have an incident, but right before that we have, if you look at Leviticus 9. Leviticus 9 in verse 23. And Moses... And Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. The first fire that was lit on that altar was lit by God Himself. Out of the glory clouds, which was the presence of God, out of the glory cloud, that visible presence of God, came a fire and it hit that altar. It hit that sacrifice. And when it did, God ignited that sacrifice and God lit that sacrifice Himself. You can see that fire right there. We're walking up the ramp to the fire. You don't see the, the ramp here, but you see a ramp here. That's how the priests made their way to the altar. They didn't have steps like this. They had a ramp. And the reason why they had a ramp was so that when they ascended, to the altar, there would be absolutely no flesh exposed before God. All flesh had to be covered. If they had walked up steps, as they walked up steps, it would have revealed flesh. God said, I don't want to have any of that. That's what the pagans do. The pagans, when they worship their false gods, they expose themselves. They uncover themselves. They show their bodies. But God says, when you come into my presence, in my altar, I don't want to see your flesh. You're not going to worship me like the pagans worship their God. You're going to cover your flesh. When those priests made their way up that altar, you couldn't see any flesh. In fact, the Bible says, they had britches underneath their garments, you know. They had tunics, tunics that went down to about the knee. And underneath those tunics, there were britches that covered their legs. God said, I don't want to see any flesh. 
And the garments of that priest wasn't made out of an animal. It was made out of linen. It was made from the vegetable kingdom. Because God said you're not going to be saved by your own works and sweat. You're going to be saved by the grace of God Almighty. So clothed in linen from the vegetable kingdom. Clothed where the flesh couldn't be seen. They approached God's holy altar of fire. God lit that altar. He set it on fire. He was the first one. He lit it. And they would go up there and those priests would stand on the top of that altar. It was big enough for them to stand up there and to put the sacrifices on the altar and to move the wood and to move the sacrifices. They would stand up there on top of that. Take the hooks and move the sacrifice around. That fire initially was started by God Himself. And then they had to maintain the fire. See, God will ignite you with the fire when He puts His Spirit in you He'll ignite that fire. But you have to maintain the fire. If you're cold tonight, if you're lukewarm tonight, it's because you want to be. Because when God came in you, He came in fire. When He came in the, came and filled you with His Spirit, He came with fire. And it's up to you to maintain the fire. The priest had to maintain the fire. I gotta keep the fire burning. You gotta keep the fire burning. The priest walked up that ramp. Maintained the fire of God that had been ignited. But in the 10th chapter of the book of Leviticus, after God ignited the fire, the Bible tells us a story about some sons of Aaron. Aaron's the high priest. He's the only one that's got the golden incense. He's the only one that's got the golden censer to offer incense unto God. Nobody else can do that. The Bible says, Nadab and Abihu, took it upon themselves to go and get some fire off of that altar. The same altar that the high priest got the fire off of and put in that fire pan and put on the golden altar of incense. They went to the same place. They didn't go to a different place outside. They went to the same place. They got the fire from the same place. But when they did it, God killed him. And the reason why God killed him, the Bible says, is because they tried to offer strange fire to God. It wasn't from the wrong place. They were not authorized to offer fire. Only the high priest could offer in the censer that fire to God. What did they do? 
Nadab and Abihu were sons of Aaron, the high priest. And God killed them. God said, you're bypassing authority. You're trying to offer fire that you're not supposed to offer. You're bypassing God's high priest. God said, if you try to bypass God's high priest, then God said, this is what will happen to you. He said, I'll kill you on the spot. He said, they offered strange fire to God. It's a picture of somebody offering their own incense outside of Christ. It's a picture who is not under proper covering or proper authority. They're not authorized to do what they're doing. But they take it upon themselves to do things that are only authorized by Aaron, the high priest. And God killed It wasn't because it was the wrong fire. It was because they were not authorized to offer. There was a man by the name of Uzziah that tried to go in the presence of God and offer incense and God struck him with leprosy. Because he was a king. He wasn't a priest, high priest. And the priest tried to stop him and said, Uzziah, don't do this. Don't do this. You're not authorized to do it. His pride, his arrogance got a hold of him. And he walked in the presence of God. When he did, God struck him with leprosy. He died. He was the king. But he wasn't authorized to handle that incense. The golden altar. You know the story. The Bible talks about another incident. This is too heavy for you tonight. Somebody needs to hear it. You're dealing with a holy God tonight. In Numbers, the 16th chapter, we see another man by the name of Korah. Korah and his company. You know what they did? Korah and his company, they made it. Censors out of brass. See, they wanted to offer incense too, like Aaron the high priest. And as I said, only Aaron the high priest had the golden censer, but they made their censers out of brass. And they started trying to offer incense to God. Those brass censers. And the Bible says the earth opened up and they fell straight down into hell. You know what they did with those brass censers that Korah and his uh, company made before they went straight to hell? They took those censers, brass censers, and they pounded them into a plate. And they made a covering for the top of that altar. They put it right on top of that altar of sacrifice. And as they carried that altar of sacrifice through the wilderness. On top of that brass plate, they put a, Numbers 4 tell us, a, a beautiful purple cover. And then on top of that, a badger skin. On top of that, Numbers 4 tells you that. 
And when they put that brass plate made out of those censers of Korah, number 16, they put it on top of that altar, the first covenant. God said to everybody in Israel, to everybody in the church, don't bypass God's high priest. If you do, the same thing's going to happen to you that happened to Korah. If you bypass God's high priest and God's delegated authority, you're going to drop straight down into hell. And it was a warning from that day forth. Don't try to offer your own incense your own way. You need a great high priest named Jesus Christ. That fire you see burning right there. Originally was ignited by God Himself. Came out of the glory cloud. Hit the sacrifice. And then everything church that was had anything to do with fire came from that altar. The menorah and its light came from that altar. The fire on the altar of incense came from that altar right there. On the day of Pentecost, the Bible says when God came and poured out His Spirit on that early church, say the early church, the Spirit of God came and filled them with the Holy Ghost and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. And when they did, the Bible says, cloven tongues as a fire set upon each of their heads. God said, I'm going to take my fire. The fire that I started that altar with that was used for the altar of incense, prayer and worship. The light that was shining in the tabernacle he said, I'm going to take that fire and I'm going to put it on the inside of you. God said, I'm starting my church. I began my own church. And I'm going to ignite it. I'm going to be the first one to light it. And after that, everybody's got to maintain that light. Somebody said, now... When people get the Holy Ghost, we don't see cloven tongues set on their head. You don't need to. Because on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that fire was ignited by God the first time, and there's no need for it to be relit again. What is needed is that you and I maintain that fire that He put inside of us. And then we take that fire and that light to the world. We need to spread it to the world. I got to pray with Wayland the other night. And I know I, you could tell God came on him in my kitchen. He said you could see God all over him. He prayed a prayer of repentance. Hallelujah. My daughter prayed a prayer of repentance. Hallelujah. You could feel God in that kitchen that night. 
You didn't have to see another fire set on the top of the head. And anytime anybody, I, they, he didn't get the Holy Ghost that night. I believe he's going to. But anybody, anytime somebody gets the Holy Ghost, starts speaking in tongues, you're not going to see a cloven tongue anymore because God's already lit it once. He don't need to relight it over and over again. It's still burning now. And I'll tell you this, that the fire that was on that altar, once it was lit by God, it was never allowed to go out. Which means to me that they had to carry some of that fire with them through the wilderness. And put it on the altar. And maintain it by putting wood on it to keep it burning. Once you get the fire of God's Spirit, you got to keep it burning, my friend. You got to maintain it. It's to never, never, ever go out. You're responsible tonight to keep the fire burning in this church. You're responsible tonight to spread the light and the fire of the living God to the world. Give the Lord praise in this house tonight. Hallelujah to the Lamb. That fire from God's glory cloud that, that lit, ignited that first fire on that altar was the fire that fell same fire, God's fire, was the fire that fell upon Elijah's sacrifice. If you don't believe in the fire that fell in, in Leviticus 9 and lighted that there, if you don't believe that the fire that ignited the sacrifice of Elijah, if you don't believe in that, if you don't believe that God ignited the fire on the day of Pentecost when He started a church, poured out the Holy Ghost, and they started speaking in tongues and put fire on the top of their heads. If you don't believe in that fire, you'll never get the Holy Ghost. That early church, when they started speaking in tongues, believed that God was the God who lit that fire. They believed that God was the one who lit Elijah's sacrifice. They believed that Jesus was the one God of the Bible. They believed that Jesus died for them on the cross and shed His blood on that cross. They believed that. And they experienced the fire of the living God. We have no excuse tonight if we come to church and the fire is not burning. Everybody here tonight has to maintain the fire. You say, I got the Holy Ghost 10, 20 years ago. Do you still have it today? Is it still burning hot today? You believe what I'm preaching? Say amen. Verse 4 of Exodus 27. Thou shalt make for it a grade of network of brass. Brother, you wouldn't mind backing up and going to the brass altar again in the uh, the interaction. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse by verse, yes. 
and go back to the altar. You will see a difference tonight. This picture depicts this lattice work of brass in the midst of the altar and that that lattice work upheld the sacrifices the fire burned underneath it. You saw it different in that picture. The fire was on top of dirt burning on the top. There is debate about some of the things of the altar, the dimensions of it, height-wise, etc. There is debate as to this great work, this lattice work, as to whether or not it was in the middle of it like this or if it was on the outside of it as a decoration. It's debated. The Jewish mind, they say that it was a hollow altar filled with dirt, coals on the top, fire on the top, and they put the sacrifices directly there. Others interpret the Scripture to mean the lattice of the great work was in between. The ashes fell through it and were gathered there from the bottom. The Scripture talks about when Jesus hung on the cross that He was suspended between heaven and earth. So it could be that this type of the anti-type Jesus Christ was suspended between heaven and earth. The sacrifice was laid there. I'm not going to get into that, whether or not that that's the way it was designed or not. Brother Bloss will bring us to some progression here. I'll show you the ornate aspects of it. Well, you should be able to just hit next. 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 There you go. The lattice work here with the brass circles for the staves are seen this way. Next. There it is. It's seen as an ornate decoration for the altar on the outside of the altar. In the middle of the altar. This way on the outside instead of in the middle of the altar inside. I'm not sure exactly how. I lean towards personally to this one. That the sacrifices were held above the flames by the grace. I, I, I just don't see how you could put a piece of flesh right on top of burning wood. But this is the Jewish diagram of it. They, they could be correct. But I will say this, that this is a matter of interpretation. They put this ornate, the lattice work, the great on the outside, and beautiful decorations on the top of the altar. That's what they believe that it looked like. Now, just because it's Jewish doesn't mean it's always accurate. You need to know that. Say praise the Lord. But that's what the verse is talking about there. Verse 4, Thou shalt make for it a grade of network of brass, and upon the net shalt thou make four brass and rings in the four corners thereof. What are those rings going to be for? Brother Bloss is going to show us these stays, beautiful brass stays that were placed in those rings because that ark had to be carried. 
through the, I mean, that altar had to be carried through the wilderness. What that's saying to you is that Jesus is not going to stay dead. He's going to be put on that altar, the cross, the fiery wrath of God's going to fall upon him. The blood's going to come out of him. He's going to shed his blood just like that altar. But he's not going to stay in the grave. So put staves in that altar. Make it move. Make it walk. Because he's coming out. He's going to live. Those staves were made out of shadow wood. And now he's going to show you a progression here in animation. Watch how they overlaid the shot of wood with the brass. Say praise the Lord. Keep it moving. Because Jesus is not going to stay dead. He's going to come out of the grave. Hallelujah to the Lamb. He's not a dead Savior tonight. He's a living Savior tonight. That great, those rings, it's like this, then the rings. Look, this picture shows it coming up underneath, wrapping around the altar. Connected to the lattice right here, coming up around like this, all right? That's a very strong possibility right there. But they show it being on the outside. You're going to have to transport that altar. Go to Numbers 4. I'm coming to a close. Numbers chapter 4. Verse 13. They shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth thereon. When they got ready to move that altar, God said, you clean the ashes out of it. And you cover it with a purple covering. Purple speaks of Jesus in His royalty as King of kings and Lord of lords. But purple is made up of two other colors meeting together, blue and scarlet. Jesus was the sacrifice that died on that cross and shed His blood. That's the scarlet. But He was also the Lord from heaven. That's the blue. The Lord of heaven became the sacrifice for my sins. The two met together and made the purple royalty. God said, we know that they took the plate of bronze from Korah's and his group censers, and then on top of that, purple. Where two colors met, blue and scarlet. And then on top of that, he said, put a badger spear. The Bible says that they're going to put that purple cloth and then they're going to put the vessels, verse 14, those five vessels wherewith they minister about it, even the censers, the flesh hooks, the shovels, the basins. That's what held the blood. All the vessels of the altar. They shall spread upon it a covering of badger skins and put to the staves of it. Cover that brass plate with a purple cloth and on top of that put a badger skin on it. Because that badger skin or that porpoise skin 
was ugly. 